Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. It's reshuffle week in Westminster, so we're reviewing who's up and who's down. There's new RFS quality report out with big implications, and universities' financial sustainability is back in the news. It's all coming up. Exactly. That, that's the first thing I think when I read these reports is, okay, how could that apply to us? If they came knocking on the door tomorrow, what would they say about our provision in these categories? Um, and, and what would we have to, to be able to demonstrate um, uh, value and, um, and quality in, in those areas? Welcome to The Walkie Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Walkie's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to shuffle the HE policy deck of cars this week are three fantastic guests as always. In Marlend, it's Chris Shelley, Director of Student Experience at Queen Mary University of London. Chris, your heart of the week, please. Oh, well, my highlight of the week with tongue firmly in cheek, Mark, has got to be the news that yet again there's a delay to the in-year returns for HESA data futures. Uh, but at least we got an apology this time from JISC, uh, recognising the huge effort that st- efforts that staff have, have put into the project for, for many years now. But that might tell you more about how exciting my life is than uh, my actual highlights there. It, it definitely does. It definitely does. Uh, in, in Camden, it's Jess Lister, Associate Director for Education at Public First. Jess, your heart of the week. Uh, yeah, I started this week up in High Wycombe, uh, first first time for Guild HE's conference, talking about uh, public opinion and the public sector, uh, which are my two favourite things. Excellent. And live from Liverpool, it's James Coe, Wonky's Associate Editor. James, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week this week is that for regular listeners, you'll know my daughter Olive is getting bigger every day, and this week she did a little bit of walking for the first time. Right, we start the week with the big reshuffle in Westminster. Chris, what's going on? Yeah, what a, what a Monday we had. Um, the, the day after, Sola Braverman and James Cleverly laid a wreath together at the Cenotaph, watched on by Rishi Sunak and, of course, uh, all the former Prime Ministers, including David Cameron. Uh, we awoke to find that Cameron had now become Lord Cameron in order to allow him to take on Cleverly's former role, former role in the Foreign Secretary uh, and uh, as, he, as he'd moved over to, to take over from Suella. Um, a reshuffle ensued and uh, many roles were, uh, were changed throughout the day, either through resignation or, or other otherwise, depending on whether you believe the uh, resignation letters. Um, a few of, of note for us, um, in, in housing, Rachel McLean was replaced by Lee Rowley. Um, in DfE, uh, there was another guess who's back moment, um, but the headlines were possibly dropped, um, which was Damien Hines returning uh, to fill presumably the school's remit that's been vacated by Nick Gibb, who'd been there for, for many years. Uh, but for HE, the biggest note uh, is probably the departure of George Freeman, a science minister from DSIT. Um, he'd held responsibility for research and arms length bodies, such as UKRI and um, and he said that it was time to, to move on and actually his resignation had been uh, agreed back in September and he's been replaced by Andrew Griffith who's been in the Treasury for the last year. So uh, an interesting time for us ahead. I guess another interesting note for the sector will be what James Cleverley's approach to international student policy will be. Um, but maybe the biggest question is is just, you know, will anything change given it's likely to only be a 12 month or so uh cabinet good good right okay so we'll come back to science jess just tell us on a sort of meta level is this reshuffle a kind of slightly friendlier flavor for for the sector 
Yeah, so it's probably, I mean, I, I don't say this out loud, uh, it's probably Rishi Sunak's last reshuffle before the election. Uh, so, you know, barring further crisis and catastrophe, which very well could happen, uh, this is the team and the cabinet that um, he's now going to put in place uh, to go into the election. Um, it's a lot more centre-right than right-ish. Uh, if you look at sort of voting history and the people in the cabinet, you've had a few people that have been sort of up and coming for a while uh, who are now around the cabinet table. So sort of following Claire Coutinho, who's now the energy secretary, we've got uh, Laura Trott and Victoria Atkins, who are all seen as uh, sort of Rishi's, Rishi's people. Uh, Laura Trott, is worth saying, used to be the education special advisor under Cameron. Uh, so it feels feels very Cameroonian uh, as a cabinet. Um, in terms of what it means for the sector, I'm, I'm not sure anything materially changes. We didn't have big changes in DfE. We've had a bit of a reshuffle of science minister, um, but you know nothing. There's not really a reform. What about, what about the culture wars? What about the culture wars? I mean, what about the culture wars? Braverman as the you know the sort of the 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 woke finder in chief, but we've got a new one of those, haven't we? Yes. Uh, the thing I, I haven't mentioned because I keep trying to forget that it has happened is Esther McVeigh is back in the cabinet uh, as uh, the sort of czar on woke. Uh, so she is, you know, now probably one of the most right wing members of the cabinet. And basically has a brief to uh, point at things that Labour does and say that it is woke. Yeah. Um, you know, this this is where the risk factor has always been for, for the sector. It's where it will continue to be. Um, there is now someone dedicated to pointing out the things they do that the Conservative government disagrees with, and that the people that vote for the Conservative government disagree with in the sector. Uh, and I just expect that was just going to get louder and louder over the next twelve months. And possibly more hilarious and more desperate. Yes, if poss- possibly. <laughs> Um, James, so we've got a new science minister. George is uh, a free man, finally. Um, what's uh, what's his legacy? Oh, I mean, I've, I've, so I've wrote a piece on this up on the blog, and I think Freeman's legacy is going to be remembered in two ways. So for Freeman enthusiasts, there is a legacy of, you know, Aria negotiating, uh, getting back into Horizon where others wouldn't. And I think being seen as somebody who was generally positive and liked the sector a lot. I, I also forget he'd been there for absolutely ages. He'd done science roles for the best part of ten years. He'd he's seen David Cameron start, leave, and come back again in the whole time that he's he's been there. On the other hand, he is being, you know, fortunate to be minister when he was. There has been the record uptake in public funding for R and D. And he has done an awful lot of stuff that is yet to coalesce into a coherent agenda for science, and it all feels a bit vague and messy at times. So I think a friend of the sector, but probably some lost opportunities given how good the circumstances were to be the science minister. Mm. And and what about his replacement? Andrew Griffith. That's the badger. Yes. Uh, So, Andrew Griffith, uh, to be honest, Mark, I knew absolutely nothing about him until I started doing research when he got elected into the job. Um, He's part of the 2019 intake, but his background is working in finance for likes of Sky and PwC, etc. He has done a few junior roles working across things like net zero and infrastructure and that type of work. I suspect, and I suspect based on the little bits we've seen him talk about science and the economy, that he's going to be a very different type of minister to Freeman. And I think it could be different in two ways. Having been former city's minister, I think he could do some more of the work, as in his terms he calls it, unleashing capital around science. Doing things like pension reform, spin-outs, the investment ecosystem, foreign direct investment, etc. On the other hand, given Michelle Donlan's recent speeches about work science, 
And we should remember that Griffith is not only a friend of Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson briefly lived in his house. There could be a bit of a return to that type of agenda. So I, I think it is all to play for, but we should expect a different approach to Freeman. When you say he lived in his house, you mean he, he crashed on a sofa on one of the many times he was thrown out by, you know, one of his <laughs> previous wives? He he was living there. So he was living there, grace and favour, during one of uh, the campaigns. He was a big friend of Johnson. And sort of, if you read the likes of City AM, one of the anger of the Tories is basically a suggestion that Griffith is only in his job because he helps finance Johnson's mm. campaign. I, I think and Dominic Cummings would call him a, a NSW1 NPC, wouldn't he? <laughs> I think he'd call everybody that. But, I mean, he's like... Uh, I'm not other, from SW1. On, on the other hand, I mean, nor am I. But on the other hand, I, I think he is... Like, it is interesting to have someone who's like, we need more cash in the economy to do more stuff as a proper free marketeer in science. Mm. When basically the whole science approach is being you put public investment in places to make them better. I, I don't know if those two things are necessarily reconcilable. Well, not not in a year anyway. Jess, go go for Jess. And the other thing, I guess, is is having someone uh, come out with a sort of treasury and business background means the first thing they look at is the science budget has gone up and where is my return on investment? And as uh, you know, science policy fans will know that that return on investment takes a long time and isn't immediate. You don't put money in and take money out quickly. Mm. Uh, you put money in, you let it develop into kind of brilliant science and innovation, uh, and then it grows the economy. So there is a bit of a risk that having gone from a, a fairly enthusiastic natural cheerleader for the sector under Freeman, we now have sort of treasury scepticism and business mindedness um, sort of with, with, with the science funding brief, uh, which up to this point has, has done fairly well compared to other, other sort of uh, policy areas. Yes, mm. I, I think you're right. And I was, I was struck when I was reading through some of his speeches on the National Security Investment Bill. He was talking about actually which country should we work with and in what circumstances. And one of the things he said was that um, the salaries of nurses and doctors and teachers depend on the cyclotron of capitalism that combines our world-leading science and intellectual capital with human talent from all over the world. So there is a bit of a thing of actually, you know, is in, in the way that we think you invest in public sort of sphere, then private investment follows. That would suggest he almost has the opposite view of the world, that private investment crowds in the public sector. Mm, good, good. Um, or, or not so good, depending on your, your ideology. Chris, <laughs> so back, back, to, back to David Cameron, you mentioned, I mean, my basic theory about this is that he's probably um, less likely to start wars with other countries. And, and, and stick with me here, that, that's good for universities, because stable geopolitical environment is kind of what we need to be able to recruit international students, you know, do all the international research collaboration and um and and all the rest plus you know we don't like war so that that is you know is is it a slightly more um slightly slightly more stability possibly a good thing yeah i mean stability's got to be got to be good if we, if we could have it for five minutes it would be it would be nice um and i know today that he's already gone off to ukraine um and and presumably will be spending a lot of his time um out of the country and and um you know warming the hands of of leaders in other countries because you know the gravitas that he has as a former pm and the relationships that he presumably still maintains from his time as a prime minister um, will actually potentially mean that he, he is he you know, does have that extra level of um influence as a foreign secretary than perhaps some of his predecessors would have so i guess yeah that that's what we can hope is that um, he can, um, uh, you know, be influential um, in his role, in his new role in uh, in a variety of uh, countries to, um, to, uh, to to minimise things such as war. But uh, it remains to be seen. And, and Jess, if we think back to his time as, as Prime Minister, I mean, 
a lot's been written about his, his sort of lack of engagement on the detail of these things. But he, I mean, he wasn't overtly hostile to international students, was he? No, and the thing I'm really fascinated uh, to watch um, is is what the approach is going to be on China. So mm. there's this 2016 sort of picture that's resurfaced over the last few days of uh, Cameron and Xi Jinping, um, sort of Chinese um, premier, um, you know, having a pint in a Buckingshire pub. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, that China policy has hardened fairly significantly yeah. since. So just to interrupt, but there's a great Twitter account called Insane Moments in British Politics, which is regu- regularly uh, retweets that one. But anyway, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real it's a real it's a real moment. Um, if if you, if you're not very political, it, it really don't know what's going on there um but but china policy is something that you know the conservative party has become significantly more hawkish on since the kind of cameron golden era um with cameron back in that post it's unclear to me what that means for some of these sort of legacy issues that the conservatives have have moved away from in the last 13 years or hardened Mm. lines on Mm. uh to then sort of go back and have the sort of leader of those lines uh in place as foreign secretary um, China's always been a really tricky point for the sector to talk about. Potentially, this is a really good thing because it means there's someone that really understands the sort of tensions and the complexities of that issue rather than sort of reducing it to, you know, UK good, China bad. Um, but with Labour being fairly hard line on China as well, uh, I think that's one to watch. I don't know if you saw in the, I think it was in the Guardian yesterday, reporting that Chinese state media had welcomed the return of Cameron, which in, I think in the way you say it, Jess, will undoubtedly raise the heckles of some members of the Conservative Party. Yeah, but he, he is, as Jess is unlikely to kind of reverse the policy, the sort of current mood and policy, isn't he? Because this is, this, you know, the kind of the China hawks have essentially won the argument inside the Conservative Party. And he, you know, you assume anyway, he's not going to have the capital to kind of walk back to, to 2016, which was also, that was largely driven by George Osborne, wasn't it, as well? I mean, yeah. this was a, Yes, um, I, I would think so. But I, I suppose one of the areas, you know, if we speak to universities often, this str- strategic ambiguity about actually what on earth is the relationship meant to be with China, I think if this just means there is even less clarity about how they're meant to deal with, you know, one of our significant and largest trading partners, then that wouldn't be ideal either. Mm, ideally, oh, it depends on, you know, if you're from a negotiating point of view, it could be a, it could be a good thing, you know, the sort of uh, keep keep it keep it keep it shrouded in mystery. Um, I good. suspect we won't sort of get there. We'll just see Cameron bop around the world, mm. uh, shaking hands with foreign dignitaries, while Rishi Sunak sort of stays at home with his spreadsheets uh, for the next twelve months. So maybe, maybe I'm being optimistic, thinking we're going to have sort of coherent foreign policy uh, rather than just photo ops. Well, it's probably better than some of the alternatives, um, which I guess is why uh, why he was um, put in the House of Lords for for, for this reason. Um, right, I'm, I'm searching for more of your your reshuffle hot takes before we move on. And what else have you got for me? The Good. only other thing is um, this sort of very quiet resignation of quite a few like mid-level ministers. So oh, yeah. George, George Freeman is one of these. Uh, but there seemed to have been a whole gang just sort of desperately waiting for a reshuffle so they could go back to their constituencies and, and spend a nice time with their family. Uh, so we've had Will Quince, Neil O'Brien, Jesse Norman, um, Jeremy Quinn all sort of disappear. There is this sense that there are a lot of MPs just waiting to resign. Uh, and I think, you know, they've been told not to announce it, so it doesn't sort of further sink this idea of a Conservative Party in just total decline. Uh, but you've had quite a lot of experience just just vanish very quietly uh, and, and go sit back home for 12 months, uh, which, again, isn't isn't 
isn't a super sort of positive thing for for good governance. The only other thing, um, of course, now now is um, if, if following you know last night's breaking news is of course Labour will now have to reshuffle their front bench. Um, given uh, a series of resignations, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and how they uh, line up against this new uh, this new cabinet. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Matthew Guest. I'm at Durham University, and I've spent the last two years working with colleagues at the University of Coventry on a project that's concerned with how students build relationships. Uh, with those who are different during their time as students in higher education. We've studied the whole of the UK higher education sector, taking case studies of universities that are institutionally very different from one another to look at the different ways in which um, they cope with diversity within the student population. But also we've surveyed students at two different time points um, with a 12-month period in between in order to ascertain patterns in the way in which students across the UK uh, view religious and worldview difference, but also um, the way in which those attitudes change between those two points in time. What we found is that students do develop a strong uh, positive um, orientation to difference over that period um, so that universities do, as is often assumed, help equip students to relate better to those who are different from themselves. Right. A big new report out from the OFS on quality. Jess, walk us through it, please. So we've had uh, three more quality assessment reports come out from the OFS. So these are the sort of Ofsted style boots on the ground investigations that were launched looking uh, primarily at undergraduate business courses. Uh, so this time round, we've had uh, ones for BPP and Goldsmiths, which found no concerns, uh, similar to the previous reports from uh, University of East London and uh, LSBU, um, and one with some concerns, as this is the University of Bedfordshire. Uh, so there's three areas that the OFS have picked up as sort of um, you know points points to raise. One's around uh, appropriate styles for teaching delivery. So uh, for Bedfordshire's non-traditional students, uh, it seemed that the the way that teaching was being delivered wasn't wasn't working for them, and and Bedfordshire wasn't being responsive enough uh, to that. There was one around student engagement and the personal tutor system, which didn't seem to be working well at all. Uh, and there's one around a sort of institutional strategic response to low continuation. So just a real lack of uh, understanding about why continuation rates were low and, and what to do about it. Um, like with the previous reports, there's no regulatory decision. It's just a sort of report on the investigation. Uh, and I know on the site today, there's some rare praise for the OFS from uh, Wonky's own Jim Dickinson, uh, who thinks this is some of the best work the OFS has produced, um, with a list of polite suggestions on how to make it better, obviously. Um, but it seems like the OFS has really sort of picked up some momentum in this uh, sort of, I think, fairly new style of, of investigation and reporting uh, with a whole new bunch to, to wade through today. Right. There's a lot there, Chris. I mean, it's it's not easy running an institution like Everture, is it? No, absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, it's not really easy running any institution, especially no. uh, post-COVID. And when we're talking about, you know, teaching delivery and, the, and the, you know, specifically the timetabling point there, um, you know, while it's while it is a um, a, a good uh, and perfectly understandable statement to say that look, your teaching delivery has to reflect your student body. Um, 
uh, and you know this reference to non-traditional students um, needing uh, a different model designed for them. Um, the, the student bodies at places like Bedfordshire and, and Queen Mary and many many others are so diverse. You know, to, to simply bracket them as traditional and non-traditional is actually a, a lie in itself. So. Um, you know, while while it's it's positive to see an encouragement that we should be looking at flexible ways of delivering the curriculum to meet the needs of a diverse student body, and um, that in itself opens a huge can of worms. And you know, if you, if you if you look at what's happened since COVID, obviously everything moved online temporarily very quickly. When uh, we were allowed to teach back face to face, we were under a lot of pressure to make sure that we did so, and that and there was pressure on universities to not be seen to be you know cutting corners or, or lessening the student experience or not giving students value for money by by leaving things online um, and that that would you know fundamentally change uh, the the mode of delivery and actually now you know we are all learning that there is there are benefits to to blended styles of delivery there are benefits to a mixed mode of education um, but they will be applicable to very different students and very different disciplines in very different ways um, so you know but pointing out that uh, an old style face-to-face timetable potentially asking students to come onto campus and off campus again five days a week um, is not necessarily um, ideal um, is, 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 you know, is, is a perfectly fair uh, point. But um, it does put an awful lot of pressure on the university and the rest of us in the sector to read that and think, okay, well, what does this mean, especially given it's not regulatory? What does this mean for expectations around our teaching delivery, our teaching mode moving forward? You know, we're all looking at ourselves, looking at our curriculum design, looking at different options for um, delivering uh, a range of qualifications, especially in the um, sort of lifelong education um, context. But um, if there is now pressure from the OFS to uh, deliver uh, your timetable in a range of ways to suit the range of needs of a very diverse student body, um, that's a very big piece of work. Right, James, uh, Chris gets to the, the heart of matter, doesn't he? Because it's this diverse student population, it's the financial pressures on a, on a university like Bedfordshire that has massive historic disadvantages and, and less money to spend per student than um, you know, the bulk of, you know, you know, well, certainly the average university. So um, is there a risk that, that kind of these kind of things get, you know, start to get into a kind of a doom spiral? Yes. And I think the Office for Students argument would be that every student, regardless of where they learn, regardless of what they're learning, you know, deserve a certain set of baseline standards. But our interventions are context dependent on the type of institution that we are visiting, regulating, whatever you may choose to call it. Mm. I think where the rubber hits the road is probably twofold. On the one hand, you can say that actually we have an access regime, we have a sort of overall regulatory approach, which is about flexibility in different times of learning. And then simultaneously, whatever the regulatory intervention looks like can't be too punitive because then it's saying actually, well, that discourages people from doing interesting things. So I think in general, I would say that the Office for Students intervening where they see pockets of practice that they deem to be poor, that they've got advice for improvements in the sector can learn from it, is good. I think what the regulatory intervention looks like, if there is one or whatever that chooses to be, is going to be really, really tricky to get the right turn. Right, yeah, that's right. And we're still waiting to find out what the actual intervention yeah. is going to be. We've just got, got this report, haven't we? So, it, yeah, it just, um, go on. No, so it, could, it could be nothing. It could be just, you know, it could be very, very light to say, we spotted this, can you make it better? But we know that the UFS has a whole range of powers to intervene in things like this. Yeah, I mean, Jess, uh, you know, Bedfordshire has, has been the kind of bet noir of right-wing newspapers and conservative politicians for, for a number of years. Um, that famous Daily Mail um, 
headline calling it the worst university in Britain, um, which is, you know, just kind of completely overblown and doesn't look or feel like that when you uh, when you're inside it and working to support the students there and uh, deliver deliver great teaching and all the rest of it. But is there, you know, is there a sort of, you know, do you think they should feel rightly aggrieved that they've been singled out here? Um, and in in this context where, you know, there have been certain figures, uh, you know, powering that narrative um, over the last several years, uh, you know, telling, you know, briefing the newspapers, yeah. um, getting ministers to say things out loud. And, um, you know, is this just sort of, a, could, could this be viewed as kind of another chapter of that, you know, of that kind of that movement? So what I can't get my head around, and, and I'll confess this is a sort of area of higher education I know less about than others, is why it was very specifically undergraduate provision for business courses that got singled out in the first place. And then a bunch of providers, it seemed, were selected to go and be investigated because mm-hmm. because in different ways they, they weren't hitting certain metrics. So we've sort of continuation and completion uh i think being the main ones but also sort of graduate outcomes and these other sort of soft signals the ofs like alludes to of you know student complaints and and things it hears and sort of sort of sector sector warning noises i think what's really interesting about this is is that of, of all the reports that have come back so far only two have found concerns which which you know feels significant but the concerns listed feel very much like, um, you know, things institutions could could move to address and things they just need to improve rather than kind of really existential moments of, of very, very low quality in the sector. And so I'm not sure. I think it'd be really interesting to see what happens next from the OFS from having, you know, having identified a, a really fairly specific pocket of poor provision, investigated a bunch of providers found some very institutional specific failings which can only really be solved at an institutional level uh there's there's there doesn't seem to be many sort of regulatory levers that can be pulled to, to fix some of these problems what are the actual con- conclusions and actions that these institutions now take and is it actually you know these investigations happened happened last year is it that these are things that can be fixed in 12 months and and you know these reports are just sort of a, a, a sort of stain on the record or are we looking at sort of system-wide failings it feels very much like the first and therefore sort of every time a report is produced and you know four people gather on a podcast to talk about it i don't know if it feels a little bit disproportionate i think i, I would mm, feel a yeah. bit aggrieved if i was in bedfordshire almost yeah. uh, partly because of this conversation chris do you, do you take a report like this and you know is it can it be useful to you can you look at this and go well Right. If they're going to come for us, now we know what they're looking for because they haven't really published much in a way of kind of <laughs> what, what, what you know what the criteria is. So you can look, go through these concerns and say, you know, make sure we get this, make sure we get our house in order before you know we we, we suffer the same fate. Exactly. That, that's the first thing I think when I read these reports is okay. How could that apply to us if they came knocking on the door tomorrow? What would they say about our provision in these categories? Um, and and what would we have to to be able to demonstrate? Um. Uh, value and um, and quality in, in those areas. Um, the, the worry, I guess, is that you know, as more and more reports come out, if if one in four reports finds three or four things to pick on, um, the rest of the sector will be getting compiling a, a pr- pretty long list of things that we need to now go and check ourselves. And of course, without being party to that particular investigation or, or knowing exactly what's going on on the on the ground in those specific points, uh, we might be looking to address something that doesn't need addressing or we might be addressing it in the wrong way and, and that's the 
that's the concern. You know, if you're Bedfordshire, then presumably you're very much mindful now, okay, in our next TEF submission, we clearly need to reference this investigation and have acted on it because those, while it's not regulatory, those pointers are there for a reason. Um, if, if For the rest of us, um, it's difficult to, to um, be too specific about referencing things that have gone on in other institutions, but it does give us a very clear um, steer on the sort of things that they will be looking for, whether or not they investigate us, but um, certainly in, in terms of, uh, you know, high quality provision. And, and I think there's some, there's some you know meaningful points in there you know let's i think you know to, to say that a university needs to understand the reasons for non-continuation and completion um uh, you know he's it, it, absolutely valid and and i don't know what bedfordshire's evidence was in the process they went through but um that's definitely a, a really useful pointer for us to make sure that we are properly engaging with our students to understand what it is that's, that's causing the non-continuation reaching out to those that haven't continued to find out really why and try and address it you know evidence-based putting putting evidence-based interventions in place rather than just guessing and assuming and and, and perhaps pointing to um to external factors that are, that are, not, are nothing to do with us so there's definitely things we can learn I, I think i think that's interesting so on on its own terms getting pointers from you know visits and things like that is obviously helpful for your own practice but i presume not what isn't helpful if there ends up being such a literature about every intervention ever they end up forever tacking in the wind of maybe we should be thinking about this maybe we should be thinking about this and it, and it makes me wonder back to jess's question whether it's strategic enough to help you reflect and say, and actually I can see the direction that things are going in. Now DK's here to tell us about a big week for Data Futures fans. Hello, so David Kernahan here, and if your office is anywhere near the people who deal with student records, you'll be hearing a lot of screams of despair in recent days. This is because once again, the Data Futures programme, led by the Office for Students and delivered by JISC on their behalf, has once again been facing problems. We've seen over previous weeks that the way in which data is collected and is validated by the collection software has not worked. It's been throwing all kinds of errors and generally upsetting people left, right and centre. Um, this particularly has annoyed the Office for Students to the extent that they're going to hold a full inquiry into the programme of work on which they have spent several million pounds of funds over an incredible seven years of work. If you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is just a way of counting students, how hard can it be? There's numerous exceptions and rules linked to the collection that cause all kinds of problems if it's not returning error messages correctly. The upshot of this is that we're expecting the quality of data this year to be quite low and the plans for in-year collection of data next year, which was the entire point, after all, of Data Futures, is now not going ahead. This is pending this full inquiry, uh, which is clearly going to be a concern for JISC. So what happens next? We're not really sure. It certainly means more disruption and more panic for a community of student record officers who have already dealt with a lot of problems. It means a knockback to timetables for everything from NSS data collection to HESIS data collection. And it just makes OFS and JISC not look great in the eyes of the sector or in the eyes of DFE. So hopefully this is something that can be fixed and pulled together fairly soon. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, now, sector finances are back in the news. James, walk us through it. Mark, there is a problem with university finances. Sure. So, let's take a step back. Universities are funded largely by students. Home students, as we know, are worth less in financial terms every year because of inflation, while fees don't go up. And that means that the incentive is to chase uncapped fees, often international students. So that means if I'm a university that wants to get bigger, my best route to growth is to recruit more students. However... At an event at Guild HE this week, Office for Students Director of Regulation Philippa Pickford said that there was an optimism bias in many providers' financial returns, and one of the examples she gave was about future growth in student numbers. So, alongside other concerns around things like changing to the teacher's pension scheme and some news reports we've seen of universities who may be in financial trouble, it seems like we are hitting a bit of a, a autumn of discontent when it comes to university finances. Right. Yes. So, and um, just the the, the the VC at King's, Richard Kapoor, called it the triangle of sadness um, that, that universities are, are stuck in. I mean, that, that's not news, is it, for the sector? No. And um, I'm not maybe not the biggest fan of shape metaphors, but I think it's an important point that you have a system where, uh, as lots of our research has found, you know, students feel massively sort of overburdened by the cost and sort of debt associated with higher education uh, uh, and their sort of parents and supporters and everyone looking at the system worries about student how much debt students take on to go. But the amount that they pay doesn't actually cover the fees. So you have you had sad students, sad university sort of finance office is, um, and then also sort of this this ongoing issue around uh, research funding not quite being sufficient, staff being unhappy about their their pay. We've seen lots of industrial action this year, uh, ongoing sort of seemingly resolved for a bit, but maybe not resolved in the long term. Um, issue around pensions. Uh, I think I've now got five sides. Maybe now it's trying a sort of pentagon of sadness. <laughs> but um, it feels to me like we're just waiting for an institution to fall over, which is an awful sort of policy position to be in. Of you know, all of these warning signs have been talked about at length. Um, you know, by by us at Wonky, by people in government, by sort of people watching the sector, but no one is quite clear about what specifically needs to happen to make sure that a university isn't going to sort of go bankrupt in, in the next two years. And as potentially we're now just in a world of sort of, you know, it, uh, the, the bit in um, 
the KCL report that really got me was 100 of 144 universities reported a financial deficit. Um, you know, it's not that there are, you know, 10 or 15 institutions that are struggling. It's like every institution is struggling. And we're just waiting to see, like, which one collapses first, at which point someone will do something. Uh, it does feel a bit like an existential crisis to me. Yeah. So one of the things that was interesting in, in Shisuge's uh, article was him highlighting uh, that, you know, institutions are, are trying to do multiple things and ultimately regulated by by one body. Um, and, and actually, he gave the example of, of California being a, a state with the same sort of size as, as uh, UK in terms of GDP and, and similar um, number of world leading universities. And they have a different system. They have research universities regulated by one body. They have teaching universities. And then they have community colleges um, that serve sort of the economies as well as individuals. And, and, you know, by having different regulatory bodies and different funding models, they're much more sustainable. But um, that that, that, I mean, that sounds like an interesting model to look at, and it certainly would be an interesting um, uh, direction to move in. But in order to get there, you would think that there would be an, an awful lot of victims in, in the UK sector. Um, presumably, many institutions would, would start separating themselves up into different entities, that, but there would also be new providers coming onto the scene. Um, and, and ultimately, there wouldn't be enough space for all of us. Um, and that would you know, come back to the point about um, the, the optimism. Of, yeah. uh, of student numbers that Philippa Pickford comes uh, uh, reference. So um, yes, some some uh, it, not not it's not a new problem, but some interesting new arguments perhaps presented in in the week. And um, and just to come on the on the pensions point, I guess um, you know the the teaching pension scheme has uh, has been in the news. Um, uh, because of its its challenges, but in, on the flip side, the USS is about to reduce its uh, contributions from both employers and employees. That may be a relatively short term thing in the grand scheme of things, but that in actual actual fact will be a financial uh, benefit to institutions who who are in the USS. So, um, yeah, a fluctuating uh, landscape as usual. James, I'm fascinated by this optimism bias and and sort of a bit alarmed by it really because. I mean, you know, you surely running a university over the last several years, you you might have noticed the you know the the tremendous ups and downs and that, that have you know uh, that the sector has been through for all sorts of various reasons. And you know, thinking about, for example, international students this year, which um, you know everyone is saying uh, that it is really down, really, really, really down um, on on last year. You know, possibly, you know, this is possibly the end end of the big end of the big boom. Yeah. Um, and decisions, you know, decisions might have been made on all sorts of different, you know, all sorts of different spending decisions uh, might have been made on the back of, uh, you know, projected numbers that there's just there's no, never, never any guarantee that it's gonna, it's gonna come through, is it? And and I mean, this is just, this is no way to, this is no way to plan and run a sector. I think the alternative is, however, if you choose not to be optimistic and you choose not to believe that there's going to be continual student growth, then the alternative is horrendous, right? Because the reason to be optimistic is that, as far as I'm aware, a public institution has never going to bust. So there is that sort of ultimate optimism that's not going to happen. But if you choose not to be optimistic, well, then that is to choose that the entire higher education system doesn't work. If we are going to assume that there's no increase in fees, well, then the only route to increasing income is increasing student numbers. It's not like providers can simply change who they are or what they do. So I I suppose I get the optimism bias, but what else do universities choose to do? You can choose to radically downsize, but that has its implications. You can choose to cut staff or cut, you know, programs, but that isn't great either. So although, you know, Philippa calls it uh, optimism, I also think it is a realism about the shortfalls of the sector that actually being optimistic about student growth is the only strategy in lots Mm. of ways. It's a, it's, a, it's a really clever bit of analysis from the Office for Students, though, I think, that, you know, I, I'm fascinated to see the numbers behind it, which is where they've, you know, I think what they've done from from Philippa's comments is looked at 
um, you know, across the board, everyone's planned future growth in student numbers and gone, well, you know, that actually isn't possible if you take the sector as a whole. So who's getting it wrong? Um, and I, 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 my worry is, is we're about to see quite, quite vividly who's getting it wrong um, because we're going to have institutions that, that just sort of slowly start collapsing. You know, we've all, as, as Mark said, the sort of murmurs this year that, you know, recruitment is, is slower than usual, particularly international student recruitment has sort of slowed down a bit. Um, the line has always been that the sort of current funding settlement could last for a bit longer, but not much longer. And maybe yeah. 2024 is, is the year that it, it sort of all, all falls in on itself a little bit. I, th- I think on that, Jess, you know, if you think about the regulatory landscape, well, then the two options are that either, you know, we get back to a place where we are controlling demand really tightly. Yeah. And, you know, we're saying actually, sorry, control supply really tightly, rather, that you can say we can only have so many students in so many institutions in order to make the sector function. Or what I think the sector would rather see is a much more wide-ranging, you know, review increase of the unit of resource. Capping numbers is much easier of those two options, albeit I think is impalatable for other reasons. Chris, let's try and think about this another way. Does it matter if an institution is running a deficit if it isn't going to collapse anytime soon? There's a long tail, isn't there, between those universities that are kind of um, running a deficit all the way down to ones that, you know, are you know, we worry about as a as a kind of as a going concern. Do we is there a risk sometimes that we lose sight of, you know, the broader, you know, public duty that a university has to teach people to give them a great experience and, and, and all the rest. It doesn't you know, if, if if the government is is not giving us a kind of sustainable funding settlement, then university finances aren't going to be sustainable. There is obviously an endpoint to that, but assuming that something gives in the next fifteen years, you know, most institutions aren't about to to collapse, are they? No, I, I think that's that's probably right, but that that's a bit more of a fundamental um, case for the for the the point of higher education and and the challenge that we've always got is the the image and the perception that universities are essentially in inverted commas publicly funded, um, and 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 partly funded by students directly. That that therefore the expectation that we're not losing money is is not necessarily as much about um oh no well, that means you're going to go bust in five years but but mm. more about are you being fiscally responsible with other people's money um and uh and 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 explaining the kind of nuance and the and the, and the points of higher education and trying to um uh, you know explain to the wider public that look you know we're in this situation um largely not of our own making and, and actually will be okay um it's, it's probably not likely to wash and and certainly some of the media wouldn't let us get away with that i don't think but um but yeah i think in reality um you know we will we will get through it and we'll get by and and, and the thing about the the student number targets and saying well you know the, the growth exceeds the number of humans that are likely to be in the cycle is is undoubtedly true but that also doesn't mean that if everyone doesn't hit their targets we're going to fail you know um, universities set targets but they also have scenarios where if we only hit 80 percent of that student number this year or 60 percent or 40 percent then we you know we reduce spending in other areas and in other mm-hmm. ways so so not hitting your targets doesn't su- suddenly mean oh no now we're going bankrupt unless you've been very fiscally responsible and started spending money that you you absolutely haven't got until until it doesn't doesn't appear mm. I mean, Jess. I mean, readers of readers of Wonky are unlikely to accuse us of having an having having an optimism bias <laughs> um, uh, over over in over in this side of the world. But um, you know, in terms of your your prediction that you know twenty twenty four might be the, the the tipping point. You know, something you know something something will give um, in in some sort of bad uh, bad way sometime next year. Shit, undefined bad way. <laughs> some undefined bad way that you know is is probably going to be bad for at least one university certainly going to be bad for the sector as a whole possibly you know it leads to some existential questions i i'm just your sense of where government is on this so um 
surely, you know, surely a, a failure of any kind of public institution is more evidence of kind of a broken state, right? You know, you can't get the trains, you can't get a GP appointment, um, nothing works. Now universities are collapsed. This isn't a this isn't a good news story that a government, you know, of any stripe can say, you know, look, we're cracking down on uh, you know poor quality of degrees, and you know, look look what happens. You know, this is this is a bad news story for whoever's in power, right? <laughs> Yeah, and there's um, parallels here to whenever we've had a sort of low quality Mickey Mouse debate, we should close a bunch of universities. Uh, you go, okay, and which ones would you like to close, Minister? Uh, mm. And they can't pick because, you know, surprise, surprise, universities are actually quite important to the sort of local people and places that they are in, even if they aren't sort of traditional Russell Group universities, which sort of capture the imagination of, of politicians. Um I think the why one of the wider issues here is is I don't know if the sector is being strategic enough about some of the trade-offs on the route to a sort of slightly more financially stable future. Mm. Um, there's a bit in uh, the KCLP paper, for example, that that hints a bit at this on on the research funding side. So one of the kind of added pressures is that uh, research isn't funded to the sort of full economic cost uh, and universities have to sort of add a bit on top of every sort of government research grant that they get the trade-off for that though is is if you is less research because there isn't more money um, so if you if you if you are going to start to fully fund research you are going to overall fund fewer research projects and similarly on on students you know if 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 we're in a world in which we're going to start to look at increasing the unit of resource I don't know if we're going to increase the unit of resource for everyone. Uh, so what are the like high cost subjects, high demand subjects, sort of uh, economically, socially uh, sort of useful subjects that you can you can start with? Um, and then you get into a place of, of, well, actually, that might still not solve all the problems for, for all the places. Um, and, you know, you're still going to have some institutions, even in those two scenarios that are that are struggling because not every university does research not every university does sort of high cost stem um and I'm, I'm just not sure yet that any of the answers i have seen and i should say that we haven't come up with anything better um <laughs> sort of look at the scale and size of the problem in light of the sort of economic public sector finances uh which don't look like they're getting any better anytime soon so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So, thanks very much to Jess, Chris, James and Michael who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.